You're listening to a resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. It is our joy to glorify God by treasuring Jesus in the preaching of His Word. We pray this resource will be a tool used to aid in your relationship with Christ in addition to your local church. Blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Good morning, TFC. I'm glad we are together this morning. Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 35. Luke 14, verses 25 through 35. That's where we'll be this morning in, uh, in just a moment as we spend the next hour together. Um, I want to tell you before we begin that the way in which we do what we do here is determined by what we believe about the Bible, okay? So what we are doing currently right now, the way in which we hear God's word, exposited, explained, the way in which we do what we are doing currently, why we do what we are currently doing right now and the way that we do it for this hour of, of hearing from the Word of God, from teaching, is primarily, listen, an overflow of what we believe about the Bible, okay? So listen now, what we believe about the Bible is things like the Bible is inspired by God. So it's inspired by God. God breathed it out, Second Timothy says, Right? This, is, this comes from God. So what we believe are the words on these pages are the very words of God. The very words of God on these pages. That's what we believe. That the Bible was inspired by God. And so that's why all we do during this time is stick to these words. Right? I just stick to these words and explain them to you because we believe that every word, as 2 Timothy tells us, was God-breathed. This is inspired by God. These words are God's words. These are God's words to people on these pages, inspired by God, every word God-breathed. We also believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, that there's zero error that God cannot lie, the Bible says. All of his words will come to pass, the Bible says. Heaven and earth will pass away, but his words won't. They're pure, right? So there's no error in this at all. So it comes from God, and it's without error. It, Psalm 19 talks about it being refined by fire, meaning this, what they would do with precious metals or gold was that they would heat them up real hot and then the impurities would rise to the surface and then they'd kind of scrape those off and keep doing that over and over and over again until this, this metal or this, you know, whatever it is, is pure. And the Bible speaks of this being pure. It's pure. It's purely God's truth. And so there, the only thing that could go wrong is getting it from here through me into your ears somewhere along that journey, right? So that's why if, this, if it's pure to start, then I just start here and just literally, I, as close as I can, just explain what's here because this is what's pure. So I just explain this. And if we get away from this, the impurities start to increase. So I just explain this, and that's why we stay as close as we can to this. These are God's words. They come from him and they're pure. They have no error in them whatsoever. The Bible also tells us that it's infallible, meaning that whatever it says will come to pass according to God's will. So that means that it cannot, it won't fail. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will what? Not pass away. So so we believe these things about the Bible. If the Bible comes from God, it's the very words of God, 
It's without any error, completely pure in its essence. If we believe that, that it won't fail, nothing he says will fail or be a lie or not come to pass. We also believe in then the authority of Scripture. And that's what I'll be teaching on tonight at the Sunday evening, the authority of the Bible, meaning this. If it's from God, if it's without any error, if it's completely pure, if it won't fail, it speaks with complete authority, meaning this, no one else tells it what's true. And that's the first part of authority. And it has the right, because it's from God, to rule over your life. It has the right to do it because he's God. He created you. He's the Lord. And so I could go on. We believe in the sufficiency of Scripture, that it's, it's capable. It has everything we need to equip every person with, with every good work that's needed, right? The, the, the Word of God, it, it helps to equip the man for every good work. It's sufficient. We could continue going on. But with that being said, that's why we do what we do right now, the way in which we do it. The, the only thing that we can do for the next hour is just stay as closely to this, informed by other scriptures, explaining it as, as best we can. And that's why we do what we do, because of, it's an overflow of what we believe about the word of God. If we didn't believe those things about the word, we would do something different. Right? So this is an overflow of what we believe. Okay? So that's why for this hour of preaching, we sit for one hour in our whole week our whole week, out of all the hours, and just try to learn from the word of God. That's all we're doing, okay? And that it would shape our lives, inform our thinking, and then it would bring about conviction that this is what we should live like, and we would live, live this out. So with that being said, first we'll look at our memory verse, our new memory verse, and then we'll move into the text in Luke. We're just gonna spend a second. This text um, that the Lord has given us today in Luke is providentially given to us because we're just making our way verse by verse through the book of Luke, and this is what he's laid before us. Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 35. But before we get into that exposition, we're gonna recite for the first time our com- corporate memory verse for the month of August. And it comes from the fourth chapter of Ephesians. All we're gonna do today is we're going to recite it twice. We're gonna be memorizing this this month, and I hope that you will commit to it during the month of August, verses 11 and 12 um, of chapter 4 of the book of Ephesians. But just to become familiar with it, let's just recite it, and then we'll get into Luke, okay? So let's recite it twice. Read it with me. Ready? And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Let's say it again. Very well. I encourage you to begin meditating on these verses and even begin to learn as much as you can about them. Let's now turn to the text that the Lord has providentially given us for today. Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 35. I'll read it. Now great crowds accompanied him. And he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate 
whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, anyone of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears, let him hear. As we just mentioned, speak now with authority over the, in this text because the authority comes from the text, right? So the, the authority is that this is, the, in fact, word of God. This is Jesus. These are Jesus' words. So these are not my own words or anybody else's words. These are Jesus' very words. So what we're seeing here, here's the proposition. Ready? What we're seeing here is Jesus makes clear the conditions for true discipleship. That's what's happening in this passage. Jesus is making clear the conditions for true discipleship. These are the conditions if you're going to be his disciple. And here's the purpose. So that would-be disciples count the cost before following him. So would-be disciples would count the cost before following him. Jesus makes clear these conditions for true discipleship, true salvation, so that those deciding to follow Jesus, would-be disciples, count the cost before beginning to follow him. And you could even say those who have claimed to decide to follow him would reassess if they've counted those costs and if they've come to terms with those conditions. And if they don't, they'll soon find out. They may soon find out that the cost of following Jesus is too great. It's too great for them, and they're not able to continue. Thus, proving their, in their decision to follow Jesus that it was an emotional decision. It didn't consider the truth, didn't consider reality. It was short-sighted. It was a naive decision. It thought only about the moment. It was a decision based upon maybe a momentary felt need. But it was not based on what Jesus says. It was maybe based on a cultural acceptance, but no true repentance, no saving faith, no conversion, no true discipleship, only a false conversion, a false disciple, a season of Jesus, finding out the cost is too great, turning back, and just like all unbelievers, ending up in hell. That's exactly what Jesus is saying. So, Jesus is telling would-be disciples, stop and count the cost of true discipleship. That's why I've titled this message, Stop and Count the Cost of True Discipleship. Jesus is describing, listen, in detail what discipleship requires. Stops the crowd. He tells them what is required. He tells them to count the cost, lest they give up halfway, lest they be, their faith be impure, like the salt. Pure salt can't lose its saltiness. Impure salt can lose its saltiness and prove to be useless. I mean, there's two parable, there's two, there's three sayings, three parallel sayings and two, th three parallel, uh, uh, parables, two parallel, three parallel sayings and about three, and three parables in this, right? And they're all saying the same, they're all emphasizing the same thing. Stop, here's the cost, stop, count the cost, lest you give up down the road and prove to be a false disciple. The information on the front side is vitally important that you actually know the truth and what is required 
of being a disciple of Jesus. Jesus is describing in detail what discipleship requires. He's saying you, you must count the cost. Know the cost and count the cost. He's, he's saying, he's describing the commitment that real discipleship entails. Jesus wants disciples. He doesn't want numbers. He wants commitment and converts. He doesn't want crowds. He does not care about the crowds. He wants commitment. He wants conversion. It's not boasting his ego or bolstering his identity to have superficial commitment from crowds. Care less. Crowds do not equate to spiritual progress in any way in Jesus' mind. That's not, it's not uh, exhibiting a successful ministry because there's crowds. Jesus is sparing in this passage nobody's claims to true discipleship. Nobody. He's calling for, listen, complete allegiance from anybody who would come to Jesus, completely devoted to him. He's calling for your complete allegiance, 100% if you are to call, him, call yourself his disciple. He is calling for complete allegiance. He is the Lord. These are his words, not, not mine. He is making clear that there can be no casual devotion from anyone who would claim to be his disciple. There can be no associating with him simply because it's culturally appropriate. It must be for true salvific reasons. There can't be something else that has a greater pull on one's allegiance than Jesus does. You, you can't follow and learn from Jesus if other commitments have a stronger pull on your life than Jesus does. Jesus, he requires everything. He requires himself to be the priority. He wants total commitment and he would direct his followers, those who started following him, to face the cost of accepting his invitation to salvation. And he warns them not to underestimate the cost. Don't make up the cost in your own mind. Here's what I think it means to follow Jesus. He's clarifying what it means. Don't embark on this journey after him only for its demands to exceed what you're willing to give up. I'm just saying the same thing he's saying, just in different ways. I try to explain it. Only the loyalty that, that is required by Jesus to exceed what you're willing to endure or sacrifice. He's calling would-be disciples to be able to, to be sure that they'll be able to pay the cost. Listen, lest their spiritual life resemble a task that is half completed. A life that has impurities in its faith, that isn't pure. When refined, it melts away. Listen, two, one or two things happens when you heat up these metals. It either melts away because it's impure or it becomes even more pure. And when the requirements of true discipleship come upon you, will it melt away your faith and therefore show that it never existed? Or will it strengthen your faith and make it even more pure? He is warning here. Would-be disciples must count the cost lest they become overwhelmed, overcome, and overpowered and their spiritual lives become worthy of shame and scorn. Enthusiasm for Jesus cannot carry you through. Excitement will not save you. Elation will not last. Discipleship cannot be 
any less than wholehearted. It must not be decided in a hurry. It must not be rushed into without thinking what is involved. It is, he is warning against ill-considered attachment to him. But those who know him and follow him would know the real thing, full-blooded discipleship. Full-blooded. All the way in. Following Christ and doing what he says. If you commit to him as God's Christ, as Messiah, as sovereign king, as Lord, if you desire to enter into the kingdom, eat at his banquet, if you desire to turn from sin and the world, these are the marks of one who trusts in Jesus. These are the marks, the conditions. Now, to be sure, he is not proclaiming here some pre-salvific work. He's, this is not earning justification. James 2 makes it clear that true saving faith will be demonstrated. And that's what we see here. Jesus demands that would-be followers commit wholehearted devotion. So we're going to move into dividing up this matter that's in this text. We haven't seen this in a couple of weeks. I want to show us there's some things that we need to understand before we move into the particular truth that we're seeing here today. First, I want to talk about where we were. I want to talk about where we're going. I want to talk about then we'll get to where we are and we'll talk about this particular part that we are covering today. So as we move into this text, verse 25 through 35 that we just read where were we before this? Where were we? Well, in the previous section, remember this? There were excuses and other priorities when one was invited to Christ's banquet. Okay? Read verse 18. After the invi invitation, look, at, look just above it in verse 17. This is the invitation. Come, for everything is now ready. That's a, that's a parable pointing to the salvific invitation of Christ. Look at verse 24. He says it's this. I tell you, uh, none of these men were in, um, sh who were invited shall taste of my banquet. Go back up to verse 17. The invitation for the banquet is Christ's banquet. It's a salvific invitation. Verse 18, look what happens when they invite them. But they all alike began to make what? Excuses. The first said, I bought a field. There's a priority. First, let me go deal with the field. Second, we said, another said, verse 19, I have bought five yoke of what? Oxen. I got to go examine them. Third, verse 20, another said, I have married a what? A wife. There's three different excuses, three different priorities when invited to salvation. And so this is where we were, and this is in the setting of the Pharisee's house. If you go back to verse 1 of chapter 14, look at this. Just travel back up to, to verse 1. On, on one Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the what? That's where he is. He's at the Pharisee's house. He's telling a parable of them not shifting their priorities and therefore not receiving salvation and being lost and and he's telling them that they've rejected this salvation. They weren't willing to shift their priorities. And so this is what, where we just were. Jesus is at the home of the Pharisee. He rebukes, pronounces judgment upon the religious leaders for refusing to, to shift the priorities and so receive salvation. So now, listen, when we get to verse 25, it's as if we're saying this. If excuses and other priorities won't do, because he just said this in verse 24, none of these men who were invited, the ones who made excuses, listen now, the ones who made excuses and had other priorities, none of them shall taste of my banquet. So here's what we're saying in verse 30, 25 when we start this section. It's as if to say, if, Noah, if, Noah, if other excuses and other priorities won't do to have salvation, what will do, right? It's as if to almost say that. Or Jesus is making clear in today's passage because it's thematically, Luke's placement here is thematically and conceptually connected. This is on purpose. If there's priorities and excuses that will keep one from salvation, Jesus then makes clear, if you're unwilling here now in our section, if you're unwilling to shift 
these priorities and to make me the priority, you cannot be my disciple. He's making clear what he just talked about. The religious leaders, listen, they didn't know how to be saved and they thought they did. Maybe that's true of you. That you are sure you know what it means to be saved or how to be saved. And, but you haven't heard Jesus' words of what it means to be saved. They, and then because they didn't know how to be saved themselves, they couldn't lead other people to true salvation, though that's what they were called to do. Like, that's what they called themselves to do, each other to do. So here now, as we move into verse 25, listen, this is now Jesus's, the Son of God, his authoritative teaching on what it means to be saved. That's, that's where we, so we see this issue of unbelief, these worldly priorities, and Jesus is now saying, if you're unwilling to make me your first priority in light of what we just saw, you can't be my disciple. So that's where we were. Second, let's take note of where we're going, okay, where we're going. There's a shift of emphasis that occurs right here in the book of Luke. Listen, these verses, there's a shift of emphasis that occurs right now. This is an, a self-contained literary unit, meaning it is separated from the context above it and it is separated from the context after it. And in that case, it, it's working as a hinge for the rest of the book. It's a, it's a turning point in Luke's gospel. Why do we say that? Well, up to this point, here's what's been happening. Jesus has been entangled with, if you've been here, entangled with controversy with Jewish leadership. You guys notice this? The Pharisees. I mean, that's all we've been talking about for a long time, right? Jesus has been entangled with controversy in the, with the Jewish leadership. Remember this. In, in, remember in chapter 9, verse 51, Jesus sets his face towards where? Jerusalem. That begins his journey to the cross, to Jerusalem, to the cross. And so he, he, on that journey, he begins a season of training for the disciples. You remember this? A season of training for the disciples. But can I tell you, listen, from 1114 forward, 1114, verse 11, chapter 11, verse 14. From that time forward, the Jewish leadership has been the major audience. He sets his face to Jerusalem. He's training the disciples. But from 1114 to where we are currently, the Jewish leadership has been the main audience. But listen, let me tell you. You say, well, I thought he was training his disciples. He still is. You know what he's training them in? How to talk to heretics. They're watching and they're learning. So from 11:14, there's only two places. Chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. Chapter 12, verses 22 through 53, where we see a break in the primary address being to the Pharisees. He's been doing it the whole time. And I don't know if you've felt this as a church, but you'd like, as we've gone through the book of Luke, I mean, Jesus, the tone of Jesus' ministry is entirely different from what you assume prior to reading the gospel, prior to reading the book. I mean, he has been in your face, right? So this is what he's been doing. Listen, Jesus' ministry has been largely polemical. Not political, polemical, meaning like a spiritual what? Spiritual warning, He's telling truth, and it, this truth is aimed right at the religion of the Pharisees, right at them, right at their heart. Jesus doesn't issue rebukes and warnings to other various things. When I was thinking about this, and I read something John MacArthur pointed out, listen, his judgments here are not to Rome. Like he's not, the whole time we've been watching this, he hasn't been speaking to the judgments of Rome with the, you know, that's what the Jews would expect during this time, the Messiah, the King, he's coming. Jesus doesn't rebuke Rome's leadership over, over the Jews. He rebukes the Jews within the temple and within the Pharisees' home. This is what I've been reading the whole time. 
He's face to face with the religious leaders, meaning Jesus is constantly concerned about spiritual matters. He's always concerned about spiritual matters, especially those who have a form of following, a form of religion. He confronts this. He does not spend any time with Israel's relationship to Rome. He spends all of his time with Israel's relationship to God. MacArthur adds this, if the Lord were to come into this world today, here and now, he would not go to Washington and assault political powers. He would go to the churches and he would attack the heretics and the hypocrites and the exploiters and the phonies and the fakes. He would call for true worship to the Father. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians, for what have I, uh, what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? We're the ones who claim to be following the, tr- the truth of God. Judge God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Psalm 69.9 says, zeal for your house has what? Consumed me. And listen now, this is, the, this is what we've seen true of Jesus' ministry in the past season of studying Luke. Okay, But listen, so from 11.14 on, he's been dealing with the Pharisees, but he's been teaching the disciples through this. But starting here, starting at this place right now, 14, Right now, as we go forward, where are we going? It's a hinge passage, and what we'll, be, what we'll be seeing here is Jesus is returning to addressing disciples and crowds. From 1425 through 35 on, it stands alone because it's a turning point. Jesus will deal now, almost until he gets to Jerusalem, almost exclusively with true discipleship. He's going to focus completely now on discipleship. So, He's been showing what's wrong, this this old way, this false way, and now he's going to be showing this new way, right? And look at this. It starts, how does discipleship start? Look at even just chapter 15, starting in verse 1. We see that this is the parable of lost sheep. You know what true discipleship starts with? It starts with becoming a sheep of, of his Right, even in, even in chapter 15, in the beginning, what we see is, is it starts with becoming a disciple, God's pursuit of sinners. Right, so even if you think about Matthew chapter 28, go therefore and make disciples. That's evangelism, that first part. Make a disciple who was not a disciple to become a disciple. Then what? Teach them to observe everything that I've commanded, right? That's then growth in the Lord. And so from here forward, if you want to say, what is, what, how can I learn about discipleship? You want to write a book on discipleship, right? Matthew chapter 14, verses 25, verse 25 through, through till we get to Jerusalem. He spent on the wrong, he spent time on exposing the wrong way, and now he's showing this new way. There will be three exceptions within this time frame Matthew 15, 1 through 32, Luke, I'm sorry, Luke 15, 1 through 32, Luke 16, 19 through 31, and Luke 18, 9 through 14. Those passages will again deal with the Pharisees as the main audience. Other than that, discipleship. So we're two months away from the cross. Until we get to Jerusalem, Jesus deals almost exclusively with discipleship. We've seen the Jewish rejection. Now we're seeing this new way. That's important because this passage is a hinge passage. It beckons us to understand where we were and where we're going. We won't do that next time, but we got to understand it now because that's what this passage is exposing to us. Now, let's move into where we are. Verse 25, we saw our first point last week, and the first point was the accompaniment of the crowd, or two weeks ago, which is why we're doing some recap here because of it's been a couple weeks. The accompaniment of the crowd. You guys remember this? You, been, you were here? The accompaniment of the crowd. Verse 25, what does it say? Now great crowds, what? Accompanied him. So the setting shifts from the Pharisee's house to an unknown location. Some scholars hold that he's, he's traveling through Perea, not Berea. Perea starts with a P. 
It's not where he's been previously, but he's going through. He's still on his journey to Jerusalem. And listen, there's great multitudes following him. There's a great crowd following him. The audience of his teaching has changed from the Pharisees to the crowds. It's shifted right here where we are currently. Now he's addressing the crowds. Great crowds have been accompanying him. And listen, this is really a theme of Jesus' ministry. We've seen this before. The Greek word that's used here to describe the crowds. Look, he said it in other places. Luke 7, 11. Look at this. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain and his disciples and a what? Great crowd went with him. We see in Luke chapter 5, but now even more, the report about him went abroad and what? Great crowds. Sorry, it's not up there. Great crowds accompanied him or came, gathered to hear him. He retreated from them to a desolate place to pray. So what Luke is doing, he's broadening the audience. There's a large crowd. He's done this eight specific times up until this point in Luke that we've read so far. But listen, the enthusiasm of the crowd, listen now, the enthusiasm of the crowd is about to be dampened by realities. The naive enthusiasm is about to be dampened by spiritual realities as, they, as he calls them to true discipleship. Jesus wants commitments, not numbers. He wants salvation, not superficial accompaniment. The fact that crowds were accompanying him did not mean anything to Jesus. And while, listen, so-called churches today would think numerical growth equates to spiritual progress, listen, listen, they would celebrate even maybe ministry success by citing numbers, right? Like, how's your ministry doing? Well, we had this many people. And while they would do everything they can to keep carnal people coming around, especially doing things like lessening spiritual requirements, not making any spiritual distinctions between people, never addressing the overwhelming reality of false discipleship, affirming everyone's profession of faith, not clearly communicating up front the vital doctrines of salvation, having superficial commitment to God's word, being careful not to offend anyone's feelings, making man the center of the message and the story, Jesus exhibits an entirely different evangelistic methodology. He focuses on the truth. Can I tell you, if you want to be used by the Lord to share the gospel, just eliminate every other tactic that you've learned from every other self-help, motivational, Christian living book. Eliminate it. And you know what you gotta do? Just stick to the truth. Just repeat the truth after God. That's it. Just speak the truth. That's, he doesn't wait. He doesn't reserve some for later. He doesn't hold back. He doesn't make it more digestible. He just speaks the truth. That's what he's doing here. And it will cause some here to turn away. If their intention is not really to follow Jesus, and it will cause others to inherit eternal life. But without that, you got a whole bunch of people that don't even know the truth. They don't even know if they're saved or not. I think they are. You gotta tell them the truth. That's the most loving thing that you can do. We see first the, the, the crowds, the accompaniment of the crowd, and then we saw second, the intentionality of Jesus. Verse 25b, Jesus turned and said to them, in his own initiative, he gives the crowds the conditions for true discipleship. He could have not done this. He could have kept walking he could have avoided crucifixion. 
He could have had the crowds continue to follow him. He, this seems foolish. This seems unnecessary. They're walking with you. Why would you make this extreme, this extreme um, requirement known to all these people? Let them keep coming for a little while longer. It's going to cause people to abandon. It's going to cause your numbers to decrease. It, it, people need to, over time, learn the truth, not hear it right away. Jesus, he doesn't do any of that. And can I also tell you this? He doesn't call people here to pray a short, simple, and easy prayer to receive eternal life. Can I tell you something else? He never does that in his whole ministry. Never. Why do we do that? Why do we do that? He never calls anybody to pray a short, easy prayer to be saved. Why do we do that? Not only does he not do it here, but he, he never does it. He always calls people, if you believe he's Lord, then you will give everything and follow him because he's Lord. And so if you are thinking about your salvation, can I tell you, don't look back to the time you prayed a prayer to give you your assurance. Well, I remember, you know, 20 years ago, I prayed a prayer. Look to your life currently and see if you are following Christ the way he calls true disciples to follow him. You don't look back to your birth, physical birth, to ensure that you're alive. You look to your, what? Your life right now. You're alive. So this is what he's doing. He didn't use also emotional aids and influences. He didn't call the apostles to kind of come up, start playing the strings, right? So it gets people in the mood, it will spike spiritual interest, right? And then people will make a decision. He just, he just focused on the truth. And he speaks of extreme devotion which marks a true disciple. And would-be followers must count this cost. So... Number three now, the cost of discipleship. The cost of discipleship. These are the conditions that Jesus requires for true discipleship. We've seen the accompaniment of the crowd. We've seen the intentionality of Jesus. And now we see the cost of discipleship. These are the conditions. They come from verses 26, 27, and 33. Let's read them. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, the three parallel accounts, right? Because he uses this phrase every time. He cannot be my disciple. Verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Verse 33, so therefore any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. True disciples then under his teaching, Jesus is making crystal clear, true discipleship requires and is marked by three things. First, letter A, loving Christ more than family. Letter B, loyalty to Christ which endures suffering, meaning being so loyal to Christ that you'll endure suffering to remain loyal to Christ. And number three, living for Christ, detached from possessions, meaning this, you got possessions, God might let you keep those possessions, but they move to a, a middle ground. They move to a new category where you're a steward, but you're not an owner. You'll have them if God sees fit to ha let you have them, but you're detached, meaning they'll go wherever the Lord decides them to go. They're not yours, they're the Lord. So you renounce, you've made a decision to renounce the possessions. I have them, but they're the Lord's and they're will I'm willing to give them up and not attach myself to them. They've kind of moved into the middle pot, right? There's a separation now between you and, and those possessions. You need to decide to renounce those. They're yours, Lord, if you're going to be his disciple. So I cannot wait to get into all of these with you. 
But to make these clear, we're going to go through them one at a time, and today we'll just cover letter A. So we'll literally just cover another verse today. You say, just one verse again? Can I tell you this? I really believe the Lord is slowing us down here. I just think he's slowing us down. So far in this section, I haven't been able to get through more than one verse at a time. Not just in recapping this. It's been a couple weeks I needed to recap us. But in my study, in part one, we covered verse 25. In part two, we covered verse 26. And in my study, I have every intention of going further. But here's what happens with this. It's like a diamond. And as you keep looking at it from all these different angles, it keeps revealing more and more. It's like a flood of information behind every text. And as you open up the floodgate, it just keeps on coming. So needless to say, by the time I've gotten to one verse, it's taken me 20 hours, excluding the time that it's taken me the week prior, and then 20 pages, and I'm out of room and out of time. And so I think the Lord is slowing us down. But more importantly, and more vitally, I think he really wants us to ponder these truths for a while. And can I tell you this? We must understand these truths and we must share these truths. They must be, we must understand them for our own sake and this is how you must share salvation. And let me tell you this though. It's, I think it's appropriate. You wanna know why? Because the call of this passage is to sit down and consider and deliberate the truths of this passage. And so by slowing down, we're actually doing what the passage calls for. Isn't that awesome? So let's take this. We're gonna kind of this broad scope of the cost of discipleship and then the first one, which is loving Christ more than your family. So Roman numeral one, the cost of discipleship. This is the new category we're in. Verses 26, 27, and 33. Jesus is making clear what discipleship requires. Pharisees didn't teach the way to follow God. Jesus is showing what's required. You gotta count the cost if you're contemplating a relationship with him. It should be considered seriously, not casually. Here's what's necessary to be his disciples. He does not mention every aspect of salvation in these verses. If you look at them, what is, some things he doesn't mention. He doesn't mention God's holiness, He doesn't mention humanity's sin. He doesn't mention God's divine judgment. He doesn't mention Jesus as Lord and Savior explicitly. He doesn't mention the work of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't mention the work of the the second coming. He doesn't mention all of these. But can I tell you this? If you've been with us from Luke 12, 1 through 13, 9, there's this long sermon by Jesus, this discourse, right? He mentioned all of those things. So now what he's doing, instead, he's focusing on the response, the radical commitment to the actual truth of the lives and the hearts of the people who would follow him. And this theme has continued, the radical, extreme devotion of following Jesus. Luke 9, this was not, because this is not the only time Jesus has mentioned this. Look at this. And they were going along the road. Someone said to him, I'll follow you wherever you go, Jesus. Jesus said to him, what? Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. This is the cost. You sure you wanna follow me? Are you sure you're going to follow me? Luke 18, so we've seen it happen before. We'll see it happen again. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said how difficult is it it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom. Those who heard it said, who can be saved? Jesus said, with man it's impossible, but with God it's possible. Peter said, see, here look, he's showing the cost. We've left our homes and followed you. He said, no one who's done that is not gonna receive more in this time and even more in eternal life. This is the theme of devotion has been central to Jesus' ministry. So let's move into this first condition, and that is, It comes with a cost of loving him more than you love your own family. Jesus says this in verse 26. This is what, if Jesus were to describe the conditions for discipleship, this, and this is really the first time he really does this to the crowds and the disciples together. It's a key hinge passage. This is what Jesus decides to say. If he could say anything at all, this is what he says. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brother and sister, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my 
disciples. Like, he cannot be my disciple. So, let's look at it. He starts by saying, if anyone. Now, let's stop right there. What's obvious is that this applies to who? Everyone. No one is exempt from these conditions. Not me. Not you. Nobody. Not anybody in this town who's important. Not if you have a lot of people who respect you in your neighborhood. Not if you grew up with a church background, so you're a little bit different. Not if you have a great business. Not if you have a family line that is respected. Not if you just think a little bit differently. You're a little bit you know, quirky in the way you think about things. And you say, well, I think about this a little bit differently than Jesus does. I'm sure Jesus understands. No, he doesn't. Well, for me, you don't know what I've been through. I've been through this kind of hurt and that kind of hurt. No, these are the same requirements. Not, well, you don't understand what stage my family's in. No, these are the state, same requirements. This is for anyone, anyone. They do not change the conditions. Your circumstances do not change the conditions. It's for everybody. He says, if anyone comes to me, coming to Christ, that's, we get this term, coming to Christ, right? That's the terminology for the initial expression of saving faith, right? This is where we get this term, coming to Christ. Listen, it's the initial expression of saving faith. It signifies an initial step to respond to his call for salvation. Again, it's the same thing we read in 1417 when he invited them to the banquet. If we read it in 1424 that it was Christ's banquet. This is the call to salvation. Whereas anyone who is invited in those parables made excuses and was refused, we see here if one refuses to make pivotal shift in their priorities in order to come to his salvation, come to his banquet, come to Christ, he can't be his disciple. This is a, the initial step of salvation, coming to Christ. So Jesus says, if anyone comes to me, and then he says, does not. And this signifies something that is very important. This is a condition that must happen first. If anyone comes to me and does not, it's as if it already exists in the person who is coming to him. While they are coming. The condition is if it has already happened. It's the current attitude of one who comes to Christ. Verse 27 furthers this. Whoever does not bear his own cross. It's as if this person has already taken up the position of a man who is already condemned to death. That's a man who bears a cross. If anyone comes to me and does not, it's a man who's already decided to die. Who regards his life in this world as already finished. And to further reinforce this, just look at the parables. In verse 28, for which of you desiring to build a tower does not what? Does not what? Verse 28. First, it's further solidified in verse 31. Or th what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down in what? First. So the idea here is that this is a condition. And the point is that you, not, you don't think about the scenario specifically if you're coming to Christ. Let me think about the scenario my Father, mother, wife, brother. But you think and you understand the essence of what is being said here if you are coming to Christ. And if you don't understand the essence of what's being said here, you are not coming to Christ. What is it? The point is 
that he must be your first priority. If you are coming to Christ, that's why you are coming to Christ, to make him your first priority. Why? Jesus becomes the first priority, the number one priority of your life, because you have come to the knowledge that he is God. If you don't recognize who he is, you're not coming to Christ. You're coming to something else. You realize that you're a sinner and that he's the Lord. And that's why you're coming, because you realize you need to repent from your sin and come under the submission and forgiveness of the Lord. And if you don't believe he's the son of God and the Lord and and you haven't come to the knowledge of the truth of the gospel, then you're not coming to Christ. You're coming to something else. You must realize that he is God and come to him. And that's why you're coming. And if you don't come to him with, your, as, with him as your number one priority, then either you don't believe he's Lord or you don't believe he's Lord and you're crazy. Because if you believe he's God, if you believe he's the son of God, if you believe he created you, he's got the right to all things, he holds all power and all authority, you're coming to him to make him your first priority. I'm coming to give my life to you. Number one, you're my no- because you're God. Who else would you give your priority to? If you're not coming to him as the number one priority because you believe he is God, it is ill-informed, naive, and emotional. Faith in, in him as Lord and Savior is the essence of saving faith. Jesus says he must have first place. Matthew, in Matthew, he says this in a positive way. Whoever loves father, mother more than me, he's not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me, he's not worthy of me. In Luke chapter 9, verse 23, he told this to the apostles themselves. Now he's telling it to the, to the crowds. He requires that he be your first love if you are to be his disciple. That's what he's saying. It's a call to allegiance. He has first place over all, including family. He takes complete devotion very seriously, complete worship very seriously. Deuteronomy 13, he says, if your brother, the son of your mother, your son or your daughter, your wife, embrace a uh, 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 wife you, you embrace or your friend who is even as your own soul, if they entice you secretly saying, Let's go over here and serve other gods that neither your fathers have known or you or your fathers know. Some other gods that the peoples around you worship, uh, whether near you or far off from you, the one, um, uh, from the one end of the earth or to the other, you shall not yield to him or listen to him. Nor shall your eye pity him, nor shall you spare him, nor shall you conceal him, but you shall kill him. This is how seriously he's taking If someone is enticing you to serve another God, your hand shall be against him. You shall stone him. This is what he says. Because why? Verse 10. He sought to draw you away from the Lord your God. This is how seriously he's taking devotion. And even if family would draw you away from complete devotion to Christ, your devotion must be to Christ. Luke's list here is even more intense than Matthew's. There's eight, uh, uh, seven objects, I think, here. And he adds wife, which Matthew doesn't mention, maybe in light of what was mentioned above with the excuses. One had a wife and said, let me go first to tend to the wife. But can I tell you here, let me explain. There's two more aspects that we'll explain in the next two minutes and we'll be done. The call here to hate, right, he says, Father, mother, wife, children, brother, sisters. It's not literal, but it's rhetorical. Otherwise, Jesus' words here would be inconsistent with his commands to love your neighbor in Luke 10, his commands for children to honor their parents in Exodus 20, his, his commands in, uh, for uh, husbands to love their wives in Ephesians 5, his commands for wives to love their husbands in Titus 2, his commands for parents to love their children in Ephesians 6, his commands to even love your enemies in Luke 6. That would be inconsistent. What is being done here is it's a Semitic way of expressing preference. It's hyperbolic language meaning this, to love 
less. When you come to Christ, you must come to terms and you must be in a state that he is the Lord and my utmost allegiance belongs to him and therefore I will know what he says in his word and therefore I will follow him at every step. And I will take those around with me, but they will not be my priority as the one I give allegiance to. It's, it's, it's also used in Malachi 1, yet I have loved Jacob and Esau I've hated, right? Or in Genesis 29 where it says Leah was unloved, the Hebrew word literally means hated. The point is that, not, that God had hostility towards Esau or that Jacob despised or, or detested Leah. The point is that God preferred Jacob by giving him the promise. The point is that Jacob loved Rachel more and Leah less. To hate one's family is to prefer Christ over them. That's the commitment. To align yourself with his call first. All other loves are subordinate. He's even acknowledging the specialness of one's own family because he says, if anyone doesn't hate his own family, own. There's a specialness to you having a relationship with your family, but especially at the time of Christ, if you follow him, it's gonna inevitably lead to rejection by your family. This, this would be applicable probably a little bit differently to our culture, meaning we have the tendency to idolize our families. Our commitment is utmost to our children and to our spouse and to our family. And Jesus is saying, you're not my disciple. He uses this in John 12. We're almost done, just wait just a minute. Whoever loves his life will lose it, and whoever what? Hates. That's the idea. You're supposed to be thankful for this life. But you are so committed to Jesus that it's almost as if you hate your life. Like, do you hate your life? You're going to go to this place and perhaps you might die. You're going to give up all of this. You're going to focus so much on following him. It's as if you hate your life. You do not care about your life. And that's what it would be like, do you, you know, the, my, I come from this Italian family. My commitment to, to Jesus, they're so tight-knit. And, like, do you hate us? You're, just, you're, you're so committed to Jesus? That's what it might be interpreted. So, let me mention one more thing. He says at the end of this, in all three of these terms, cannot be my disciple. The Greek word here. It means learner or pupil. In the ancient world, you'd have, great, you'd have pupils at the feet of people like Socrates or Plato. In the pagan world, you'd have people who you know, sit at the feet of people who teach about other gods. In the Jewish world, you would learn about God from the rabbis. The difference here is that Jesus clarified what he meant by discipleship along the course of his ministry, and he's Lord. So his disciple must give up his life. This is what it means to be his disciple. If this is not the level of your devotion to Christ, something is wrong. He's not mincing words here. So, he says up your own, give up your own life, and we're gonna connect that to verse 27 if you wonder why we didn't touch that. Church, let us be true disciples. Know the cost, count the cost, and let this be what you share as you share the gospel as well. Make a decision today based upon Christ's call to what it means to be a true disciple. Let's pray. Father, we come and you give us sobering words and we seek to match the tone of what you say and we seek to match the content of what you say. And I pray, God, that you would call us to true discipleship. Your words are authoritative. This is what you say. There's no mincing it. And so this is your call. These are not suggestions. There's no reason for to be ashamed when we share the gospel. 
These are your words, and they are authoritative. This is what you said. It has the right to rule over our minds and our hearts. We must come under your truth or decide not to. I pray, God, that you would do the work in the hearts of every individual here. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. We pray that it helps you joyfully make Jesus Christ your treasure.